Well, today we are uh, beginning Romans chapter 14. Uh, last week we were looking at the last four verses of chapter 13. And uh, as I said last week, I, I, I view those verses there at the end of 13 as kind of the other end of the bookends of chapter 12 through 13. So they really kind of help to wrap up that whole section of Romans, chapters 12 and 13. And as you'll see as we go into 14, Paul is still uh, talking about Christian conduct, Christian ethics, etc. Those kinds of things that he's been talking about in 12 and 13. But he really shifts gears when he gets in to chapter 14, as we'll see uh, here in a few minutes. But before we do that, let's go back and look at those verses and try to remember what are some of the things that we discussed last week in verses uh, 11 through 14 of chapter 13. Okay, okay. Uh, it's a, really a reference to uh, the contrast between good and evil. And we typically think a lot of times of nighttime as being that time when a lot of evil uh, stuff goes on. And so the idea he's using nighttime there as a metaphor for, for behavior, that, behavior that coincides with the night or evil behavior, that sort of thing. And he's telling us that's not the way we are to behave. Why not? Well, it's evil. Yes. Uh huh. Okay. Well, what's uh, how does he explain it here in these verses? Okay. And why would we? Why would we want to put on the armor of light as rather as opposed to deeds of darkness, aside from the obvious that one is evil and one is good? But what's his argument? What's it based on? What hour it is. What hour is it? Okay. It's 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 that it's that time when it, when the day is about to dawn. He says the hour this this hour is passing away. Uh, the night time is passing away. The day is near. And so he's a, it's a reference to uh, the coming of Christ. Did, was Paul uh, clueless here? What, what was Paul's problem? He talks about the coming of Christ being near, the day being near. And obviously it's been a couple thousand years since then. So clearly the apostles and Paul himself were seriously mistaken about this, right? Okay. 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 What were some of those things? Okay. 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 Those are all things that the apostles were fully aware of when they talked about the imminency of Christ's return. And so they recognized that there were things that happened, and yet they still 
taught this urgency of living with the realization that Christ could return momentarily. And when they did that, they were simply carrying on, carrying out uh, ex- uh, or, or expressing the same teaching that Jesus himself taught when he teaches about being on the alert. He uses, the, the, for example, the parable of the virgins, uh, who, uh, the, the, the five who uh, kept oil in their lamps and the five who let the oil run out, etc. And the idea is to be on the alert and be ready. And so as disciples communicate that to us, and as the Apostle Paul communicates to that, he's simply reiterating to us what Jesus taught is that it is imperative that we live under this awareness that Christ could return momentarily and we need to be ready for that. What else that we talked about last week? Yes, Robert. Is a partial preterist interpretation of that Excuse me? Is a partial preterist interpretation of that is that not Would you like to define that? Okay. Uh, it, would, it would be the idea that the majority of the prophecy in the New Testament was fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem in the 80s, 70s. And you're asking, is that off the table in interpreting this passage? I would say no. Yeah, I would say that's a, that is something that would need to be considered and weighed out. Sure. Yeah. But what kind of Pardon? Yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> what else? What about the thought that, uh, and we've already talked about this, some the thought that that so much time has passed. What effect that should that have on us? The fact that Christ said He was coming back soon, but now so much time has passed. Well, we tend to generally look at that as, wow, so much time has passed; it's not going to happen. Yeah. We should be thinking in terms of so much time we passed every day is getting closer. Yes, exactly. And that's Paul's point. He says, he says here, uh, uh, he says, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. So the point is, as time passes, as time goes on, our tendency in the flesh is to grow lackadaisical, to grow indifferent to the return of Christ. Paul is saying, no, it should be the other way around. The longer you wait, the more you should realize it's near at hand. You know, it's like when you're looking for a looking forward to a, maybe some of you have got some great vacation planned this summer and you have some special thing you're going to do or some special trip you're going to make. Maybe you're going to go see the grandkids or something. And it's, you know, uh, uh, we have a we have a uh, a baby due in uh, in uh, the middle of May or so up there in Iowa, and I'm looking forward to that. Okay, well as as time goes on, I don't get less. I don't have less anticipation of that. My anticipation of that increases. Okay, I get more excited about it as time goes on. I don't get more indifferent to it and go, well, you know, it hadn't happened yet, so it's probably not going to happen. Okay, well that's Paul's point. Our salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. So, and, and I talked about how when I was, was I, when I was young and younger in the faith and in my early 20s, you know, I was, I was really anticipating the Lord's return. Well, 40-some years have passed since that time, okay? I should be more excited. I should have more anticipation now than I had then. Uh, as I look forward to the Lord's return, right? Okay. Well, those are some of the things we talked about last week. And as I said, they really kind of wrap up, help wrap up Paul's thoughts in chapters 12 and 13. 
But now let's look in verse uh, in chapter 14, and we just want to try to get through the first four verses of chapter 14. And Paul now introduces for us. Uh, he's been talking about he's been talking about kind of the general area in chapters 12 and 13. He's been talking about a lot of aspects of Christian ethics, how we live as Christians in the world, how we relate to one another, how we relate to people, generally speaking. Now he's going to focus on the relationship of Christians to one another within the body of Christ. He's going to be very specific and we're going to work on this for the next chapter and a half, chapter 14 and a good part of chapter 15. And he says at the beginning of chapter 14, he says, Now, accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats. For God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Okay? Now, Paul is introducing here a subject that he's going to work on all the way through chapter 14 and into chapter 15 is the question of how do we relate to Christians with whom we have a difference, with whom we have a difference of opinion or a different view of how things ought to be done or a different view of Scripture, etc., etc. One of the things that we come to and uh, realizations we come to very quickly when we get saved and when we get into the church is that Christians don't agree on just about everything. <laughs> okay, And so the, the question is, how do we relate to people about whom we or with whom we disagree? Okay, and that's one of the things that that's a primary issue that Paul is dealing with here. And he's dealing with it not just strictly from a pragmatic viewpoint, but he's dealing with it from a theological viewpoint. In other words, we address the question of how do we relate to Christians within the body of Christ, not just simply on some kind of practical measure, but we allow our theology, our understanding of what Christ has done for us and what Christ has done for our brothers and sisters in Christ to be the controlling mechanism that determines how we relate to one another. Okay, so uh, and, and as we begin, I want to make clear that we're not going to answer all the questions in this area today. This is only the beginning of Paul's argument, these four verses. It goes on, as I say, for a chapter and a half. So we're going to raise a lot of issues today that we really probably won't get to or we won't be able to address substantially uh, uh, right away this week, but we will in the weeks ahead as we go on through the chapter. I was saved when I was very young. I was, uh, <clears throat> I was probably... Uh, four years old or so when I accepted Christ. And I was raised in the church. My dad, for many years that I was growing up, was a pastor in various churches and an uh, officer in the Salvation Army and things like that. And so I grew up uh, in the church. And I grew up back in the, uh, can I dare say this, grew up back in the 50s and uh, when uh, uh, Christian fundamentalism was still very strong it was uh, losing its influence to some degree. 
as uh, as uh, evangelicals began to kind of wrestle with some of the problems that were presented by fundamentalism and and tried to resolve some of those issues. But I grew up in churches which were largely what we might think of today as fundamentalist churches. And fundamentalist churches tended to be, uh, uh, how, how do I say this? They tended to be very strict in regard to a lot of things, how we behave, how we relate to the world, that sort of thing, you know. So I grew up in that kind of context where you didn't go with girls that smoke and girls that chew, and, uh, and or you didn't smoke, you didn't chew, and you didn't go with girls that do, that sort of thing, you know. And, uh, you know, when I grew up, you know, it was anathema to set foot inside of a movie theater. You just never went to a movie theater. Hollywood was evil. Everything it produced was evil. You never went into a movie theater. I never played with a deck of cards until I was in college because to play with a deck of cards was sin. And every one of those cards had some kind of satanic representation in them. Okay. Uh, and, uh, of course, uh, drinking was anathema. Dancing was anathema. My wife and I have never danced. Okay. Uh, it's not, and it's no longer because I believe it's morally wrong. It's because once I got old enough to, or got to the point where I believed I could do it, I already felt too clumsy to try and tackle it. So as much as my wife would like to dance with me, I'm afraid I've never done it. Okay, uh, I've been rebuked uh, by some of you for that. <laughs> but these are the kind of things that I grew up with. Okay, and uh, so some of these things were were things that I felt a strong objection to as I as a younger Christian. Uh, nowadays, I don't feel the same kind of uh, strength in most of those areas, uh, strength of opinion as I had back then. But but they're still part of my culture. They're still part of how I feel about things. OK. And uh, so that plays a role in how I live my life now and how I think. OK. But clearly, these are areas, uh, some of these areas I've mentioned are areas in which Christians don't all agree on. And Christians have done those even as I was growing up. Christians did some of those things that I thought were absolutely forbidden. And, uh, and so the question is, how do Christians relate to one another when they disagree about things like this? Okay. Now. Paul addresses this issue, and we're going to talk for, in a few minutes, we'll talk about the difference between essentials and non-essentials, and we'll get into that. But, but as Paul deals with this issue, and as I look at this passage, this passage is a tremendously challenging passage to me. I think it's a great passage because it tells us something about what Christ has done to make us one and how we ought to live out that unity. So it's a powerful passage in that regard. But I believe that the Christian church today, particularly in America, has found a way to circumvent this passage. We've found a way to get around this passage. And actually it kind of goes back to the Reformation. Because one of the, one of the, one of the consequences of the Reformation was that Christians discovered that if they didn't agree with something in the church they were in, they could just go start a new church. Okay. Now, whatever you think about the merits of what the reformers did, and I tend to be one who thinks uh, they did some really great stuff, and and I appreciate the stands they took, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, one of the one of the byproducts of the Reformation was that Christians discovered if you disagreed with the church you were in, you could always go start another church. 
And, uh, and if you didn't want to start another church, by the time you get to 21st century America, if you don't want to start another church, if there's something about the church you don't like that you're in, well, you just go church shopping. You can just go look for a better church somewhere, a church that you agree with or that you feel comfortable in. Okay? And, uh, and so the New Testament believers faced a challenge that we have found a way in 21st century America to largely avoid. In the, 20, in the first century, the Christians didn't have that option. Here was the church. And, and you just fit into that church wherever it was and whoever they were. And if you didn't agree with them on some things, you figured out how to deal with that. You figured out how to live with these people with whom you disagreed. We don't do that anymore. If we don't agree with uh, some of the things going on in the church we're in, we just pack our bags and we move on to another church. Okay. And I think that's one way we avoid, we circumvent dealing with what Paul is teaching us here in Romans chapter 14. Do you agree with everything that goes on here at Trinity Baptist Church? Are you comfortable with everything that goes on here at Trinity Baptist Church? If you're not, the tendency sometimes is to think, Maybe I ought to move on. Okay. Well, I made a commitment many years ago that I was committed to the people of Trinity Baptist Church. I was committed to the believers here. And whether I agreed with everything that was done here, whether I was comfortable with everything that happens here at Trinity, I was committed to the people, to the Christians, to the body of Christ that meets and fellowships in this particular location. Okay. Well, those are some of the issues that Paul is addressing in these verses here. Uh, we need to remember a little bit about the historical background. This is some stuff we talked about. Remember, clear back when we started our study in Romans, we talked about the historical background and, and what was going on there in the church in Rome. And you'll remember, just as by way of reminder, uh, that the church, uh, church in Rome, we, we believe, was was apparently founded originally by Jewish believers. Very possibly some coming back to Rome after Pentecost. And the church was made up primarily, initially in Rome, of Jewish believers. But I believe it was in 49 AD that Claudius issued his decree. And there's reasons for this we won't go into. We talked about it back when we started our study. But... Uh, uh, but Claudius issued his degree, decree in which he expelled all the Jews out of Rome. Okay, so uh, you had by that point within within the church in Rome, you had uh, presumably these Jewish believers. In addition, you would have what what would be called the God fearing Gentiles, and the God fearing Gentiles were those Gentiles who had who had been impressed by Judaism, had been won over to Judaism and had identified with Judaism. They were still Gentiles. They may or may not have been circumcised, but uh, they were they were Gentiles. But they pretty much threw in their lot with the Jews and 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 they are referred to as the God fearing Gentiles. So you would have had in the church in Rome, you had the Jews, the Jewish believers, the Jewish Christians, and you had the God fearing Gentiles who had originally been identified with Judaism, but now had become Christians. And then you have the expulsion of the Jews from Rome and all the Jews left. And what does that leave you in the church? It just leaves you with these 
Gentile Christians, okay? Initially, they were very closely identified in their thinking and their practices with uh, Judaism and with the ideas of Judaism as it had been adapted into uh, Christianity, as we see, for example, in Jerusalem. Well, over a period of time, then, as we said, the church grew and became uh, a, a essentially exclusively a Gentile church. And then uh, uh, Claudius was assassinated and uh, Nero came to power and the, and the decree to expel the Jews just kind of became dead letter. It was no longer enforced and over a period of years, the Jews began coming back into Rome. And so, for example, we see, uh, we see Prisca and Aquila uh, who in Acts were, were, were uh, forced to leave Rome under the expulsion. And by the time we get to the book of Romans, they're back in Rome. Okay, So the Jews are coming back into Rome. And now we have, as we said, as we began our study in Romans, and it's, it's been kind of in the background as we've looked at various issues throughout Romans about the law and et cetera, et cetera. And we have this idea of the Jews coming back in and then this conflict or this tension arising between kind of the Jewish way of doing Christianity and the Gentile way of doing Christianity. Okay. So this is the background then to the tension that develops and that we now confront in chapter 14. It's not strictly a conflict between Jew and Gentile. It's a conflict between the kind of this Jewish way of thinking about the law and the Jewish customs and that sort of thing. And and the uh, and the way that uh, that the that the Gentiles were more prone to think. And so you would have some Jews and you would have some uh, of the quote God fearing Gentiles that thought a lot like the Jews on one side of this divide or this debate. And on the other side, you would have uh, you would have uh, a large number of Gentiles and then you would have some Jews also who had come to embrace this idea. And I would suggest that Prisca and Aquila were among those because these were Jews who had been in very close association with the Apostle Paul and been trained by him. And so they would fall into this second category. And Paul puts a label on these two categories. He calls one the weak. And he calls the other the strong in this passage. He introduces the concept of the weak in these verses and the concept of the strong, but he doesn't name them here. He doesn't actually name them as the strong until later or identify himself with the strong until later in the, section, in the passage. But he does eventually say, I'm one of the strong ones. Okay, And uh, so he introduces this concept of two categories that are trying to fellowship together within the body of Christ. And they are the category of the weak and the strong. Now, let me just take a moment to clarify. When Paul is talking about the weak and strong, we'll define more in terms of what he means here. But when he's talking about the kind of issues that he's talking about here in chapter 14, he's talking about what theologians typically call the non-essentials. Okay? There are kind of two categories of theology and two categories of Christian ethics. There is the essential theology and there's the non-essential. And when we say non-essential theology, we don't mean they're not important things. We mean they are not essential things upon which Christian fellowship 
is conditional. So there are certain things we believe that if you're going to fellowship with us as a believer in Christ, you must adhere to. You must adhere to the deity of Christ. You must adhere to the Trinity. You must adhere to the atonement for sins through the cross of Christ. And so these are the essential things. These are the, these are the theological points that we say they are, they are non-negotiable. If you're going to fellowship with us, you must assent to these things. You must give credence to these things. Okay? There are other things, other aspects of theology. Uh, maybe your view on prophecy. Maybe your view on speaking in tongues and gifts and things like this. These are things that we don't say are essential for Christian fellowship. They are important issues. They have an important relevance to our Christian life. But they are not, they are not deal breakers when it comes to the subject of whether or the issue of whether or not we can have meaningful Christian fellowship together. So that would be the area of theology, the essentials in theology and the non-essential theology. There are also essentials and non-essentials in the area of Christian ethics. There are some things that are non-negotiable. If you are wanton, practicing adulterer, you are not welcome within the fellowship of believers. You are not included in our fellowship. You are excluded. The Scripture is clear on that. And there are a number of areas of Christian ethics that Scripture says, God uh, God says, Paul says to us, these are non-negotiables. This you must adhere to. If you do not adhere to this, you will be excluded from the Christian fellowship. There are the essentials. And then within the area of Christian ethics, there are The non-essentials. How do you wear your hair? What kind of music do you play and listen to? Etc., 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 etc. And we'll look at some of these things in a minute. Those would be the non-essentials. And those are things in which Christians may hold very strong opinions. And Paul will actually encourage us to do so as we go on through the passage. At one point, he's going to say, whatever opinion you hold, you hold it strongly. Okay? but you don't use it as a basis of fellowship with another believer. Okay, So we're talking about essentials and non-essentials. And in this passage, Paul is dealing with non-essentials. So whenever I, whatever I say in these passages, we're going through this passage both today and in the weeks ahead as we go on down through 14 and 15. Keep in mind, I'm not talking about essentials here. I'm talking about non-essentials. Now, we'll wrestle with the question, how do you know what's the difference? Okay, we'll talk about that a little bit, okay? But, uh, but, but we're talking about non-essentials. We're not talking about those things in which Scripture is explicitly clear. But we're talking about those areas in which the church has historically viewed as not being as clear. So Christians have differed on them. And they have differed strongly and they've held strong opinions, but they have differed. And they have differed because Scripture is either not explicitly clear or doesn't address the issue at all. Okay, so those are the kind of things that we're wrestling with as we wrestle with the subject of essentials and non-essentials. Well, as I was talking about my own experience growing up, I mentioned some of the things that are that 
that I held to that I don't necessarily believe were essential issues, okay? And there are a whole list of these areas. I, I was just thinking this morning as I was in the shower, what are the kinds of issues that I have personally in my lifetime watched Christians divide over that, were not, that I believe are non-essential issues? And I came up with quite a list. Actually, uh, I, I, I was reading uh, John Stott's uh, commentary, and he had a, a very impressive list in his commentary. And I was thinking about that, and I just thought, what there was, then there's this, and there's this. And, and these are just, and you probably have things in your mind that aren't on my list, but this is just a list of some of the things that I have personally watched in my lifetime Christians refuse to fellowship with other Christians over. Dancing. Going to movies, playing cards, what kind of possessions I own, my stereo, my car, my home, etc., etc. Our manner of dress, the wearing of jewelry, speaking in tongues or not speaking in tongues, the placement of the pulpit in the sanctuary. When I was uh, when I was young, as I said, my dad was a pastor. We he pastored in a number of places, but one time pastored in a very small community in Nebraska, and and uh, a church of another denomination lost their pastor, and they needed someone to fill the pulpit while they were looking for a pastor. So they asked my father if he would uh, if he would do double duty, pastor the church he was pastoring, and also pastor their church while they were looking for a pastor, and and he agreed to do it. And so he would preach on Sunday morning. He would he would go over there and preach in an earlier service, and then he would come and preach in our church for for the regular service. And and he would and he would tell us the story of how when he would go to this I won't name the denomination, but he said every Sunday when I went to went there to preach, the pulpit was in a different place. Every Sunday, every Sunday. One Sunday it would be in the middle of the platform, and then he'd go the next Sunday and it would be on the side of the platform. And then he'd go the next Sunday and it would be in the middle of the platform. And then the next Sunday he'd go and it'd be on the side of the platform. Now that's a big issue to some people. Where the pulpit is placed. And they have a theological reason for it. I'm not mocking it. They have a theological conviction of why the pulpit should be in the center. And it's why we have our pulpit in the center, in the center here at Trinity Baptist Church. It's, there's a theological reason for that. Okay? But there's also a theological reason for putting it over on the side and putting the communion table in front, in the center. Okay, Christians have divided over that, as they did in this particular church in which my father was pastoring at the time. Christians have divided over whether we sing hymns or choruses in our worship services. Christians have divided over whether or not we use instruments in worship or which kinds of instruments. Do we play a guitar or do we play the piano and the organ? Uh, Christians have divided over whether or not we use wine or grape juice in communion. Christians have divided over our modes of baptism. Christians have divided over whether or not you wear cosmetics, women. Christians have divided, or men too, I suppose. Uh, Christians have divided and refused to fellowship over their view of prophecy. Christians have divided and refused to fellowship over the issue of women wearing head coverings, over political affiliation over public or homeschooling, over what Bible translation you use, or what text that Bible translation is based on, the Western text or the majority text, over the question of ordination of pastors, 
over the question of the drinking of alcohol or the abstaining of alcohol. And on and on and on and on and on we could go, right? These are just some of the things that I have personally watched Christians refuse fellowship to other Christians over. And this is the kind of issue that Paul is addressing here. And so he starts out in verse 1 and he says, Now, accept the one who is weak, he says, in faith. Now, who's he addressing? Who is he writing to? Who is he talking to when he says, accept the one who is weak in faith? Your brother in Christ. Who's he writing to? Who's he, pardon? The ones who are, by implication, the ones who are strong. The other ones. The ones who are not weak. Okay? He's writing to the strong and he's telling them to accept those who are weak. Now, when we get down to chapter 15, verse 1, Paul's going to identify himself and say, we who are strong. So he identifies himself with the strong. But he uses this term, which is in some sense a pejorative term, is it not? He uses a term referencing these people who he says are weak in faith. Now, it's important to realize here, he's, he's not saying these people are weak in character. He's not saying they're weak in will. He's saying they're weak in faith. Okay. And when he says they're weak in faith, he doesn't mean that they're not Christians. He doesn't mean that they don't believe the gospel. Okay. They clearly are Christians because he's telling us to welcome them into our fellowship, right? So they're not ones who don't believe the gospel. They're not ones who, who don't believe Christ died for them and have received the forgiveness of sins, etc., etc. But they are weak in their understanding of the faith. They are apparently weak in the implications of the gospel for everyday living. Okay? So it's this respect in which they are Weak in faith. Okay. And as Paul's writing, he's writing to the church in Rome and he's telling them to receive those who are weak in faith. It's presumed by most commentators, and I would agree, that Paul is writing here to the majority. In other words, the majority of the Christians in Rome apparently fit into the category of the strong. And the question is, what do you do when someone who is weak comes into your fellowship. Remember our historical context? All these Jews coming back now into Rome, coming into the church, okay? They come back to Rome and they want to fellowship with those who are of like mind, who worship God in Christ Jesus, who believe in the death and resurrection of Christ. They want to fellowship with people who are of that mind, but they have some other issues. And the question is, for those of us who are in the majority for whom that is not an issue, the question of eating meat or drinking wine or special days, the three that he addresses in these chapters, in, in these verses, or in the verses that follow here, in these verses or the verses that follow. He says, for those of us who don't, for that, whom that is not an issue, what do we do with these people who come and they want to be in our fellowship, but they take issue with the eating of meat or the drinking of wine or our refusal to, update, uh, to observe special holidays. What do, what do we do with that? And what's Paul's admonition? What's his injunction? 
receive them. Okay? And the idea is throwing your arms open, a wide and warm welcome. That's how we receive them. We extend Christian fellowship to them. We love them. We include them. We make them feel at home. We are hospitable to them. We want them to be a part of our fellowship. And of course we want them to be a part of our fellowship, right? Because we want to change them. Right? Is that what Paul says? What does he say? Why do we not? What is the one, is the one reason why we... is not a reason why we receive them. Not to pass judgment on their opinions. And the idea there, when he says, when he refers to their opinions, passing judgment, it's not to engage in a controversy. The church is not a debating society. The church is not a place where we argue with each other. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't in love sit down and discuss our differences. Okay? That's fine. But what Paul is saying here is that when we throw our, own, our arms wide open to the one coming to us who is weak in faith, we don't do so with an agenda that I'm going to change them. Now, we probably all have had the experience of knowing somebody, and maybe we made this mistake ourselves, of somebody who got married, and when they got married, the person they were marrying didn't quite match up to what they wanted. And so when they married him... <laughs> what did they do? They had an agenda, didn't they? I'm going to change this person. You know, they're not what I want, and so I'm going to change them. And we all know what kind of a disaster that creates in a marriage. It's an absolute train wreck, right? When one person marries another with the intention to change them. Well, that's what we do in the church sometimes. Oh yeah, we'll receive this person. And then we're going to go on a campaign to make them think like we think. Yeah. Uh, the Discovering Trinity class is intended for you to know what we do, what we practice, and what we teach here at Trinity. Okay. And there are certain essentials then before you join Trinity that you have to agree to, right? Okay. So there are certain essentials. But when we say, well, we do things this way or we do this, you know, our, our Sunday school is structured this way. That's not to say this is the way it must be structured. It's so that you know, as, as you're fitting in the church, how we work. OK, so it's like when you come to a, a new city, one of the things you do when you move into a new city is you get a map. Right. And you try and figure out the city and where the streets are. OK, so the idea of our Discovering Trinity class is to just familiarize people with how we work so that they can work within that context. But it's not for the purpose of forcing people to conform in areas of non-essentials. Does that answer your question? Okay. So, uh, so it's just the fact that when you're when you're joining a new church, you want to understand the church. You want to understand what they teach and how they do things, and you know when the church, you know, meetings are and and why the meetings are the way they are and that sort of thing. We want to understand those things, and that's great. But it's when we as believers, when we're receiving someone into our fellowship and they don't agree with us on areas of non-essential, we're on a campaign and we're going to get them to agree with us. It works both ways too. Sometimes you get the person who's 
joining the fellowship, who wants to change the fellowship? And Paul deals with that in this passage too. Very good point. Okay. So, Paul says, you are to receive the one who is weak. Not with this ulterior motive of changing him. Now, Paul is not suggesting that he doesn't want the, strong, the weak to eventually become strong. Clearly, he does. Or he would not have taught many of the things he taught. So, it's not that we don't want the, those who are weak to grow in strength of faith. We do. We just don't want to leverage it. We don't want to manipulate it. We don't want to coerce it. We want God to do it in their own hearts as time goes on. There have been many areas where God has changed my opinion on things where thankfully it wasn't by somebody just beating me over the head. But it was just as I've lived my life trying to follow Christ and fellowshipping with other believers and interacting with other believers that that eventually changes the way I view things and I grow and I mature. Okay, Now, that's good. It is not good when a Christian comes into our fellowship and in an area of non-essentials, they are pressured and they are coerced and they are intimidated to believe and practice the way I practice and the way I believe. Okay. So Paul is just encouraging us here to have a gracious and magnanimous spirit towards others. And as Ron pointed out, it goes both ways and he'll, t- and he'll deal with both sides of it. He has some very strong words for those who are weak. But right now, he's addressing those who are strong. And he's saying, you receive the one who is weak, but not for the purposes of passing judgment. Well, then the question comes up, well, who are the strong that Paul's talking about? And who are the weak? Okay. So he says, in verse 2, he says, One person has faith that he made all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables. And the word only is added in there by our translators, but it certainly seems to be implied, particularly as you go on down through the rest of the passage. So the particular issue that Paul addresses here in these verses, he'll deal with some other issues later on, but the particular issue he's dealing with here is the issue of eating meat. Okay? Now, this probably rings a bell and you think about 1 Corinthians chapter 8 where Paul is dealing with a similar issue and he's talking about eating meat sacrifice to idols. Okay? Well, there are some striking similarities between chapter 14 in Romans and chapter 8 in 1 Corinthians, but they really are two different issues. The issue in, in, in 1 Corinthians is the issue of meat that has been sacrificed to idols. So it's a particular category of meat that's at issue, that's at debate. It's under debate. In Romans chapter 14, it's the question of eating meat altogether. And the question that arises is, why would there be some apprehension or some reluctance to eat meat? Now, we have 
we have carnivores today, and I proud myself as being a very proud member of the carnivore class. But we have vegetarians also. And vegetarians are very strong vegetarians, and they may have any number of reasons. They may do it for health reasons. They may do it because they have some objection uh, to shooting and killing animals. They may, there, there may be any number of reasons why. But the question is, why did these people in Romans, in Rome, object to eating meat? Well, several of the commentators that I read seem to be in, in pretty much agreement on this, that it wasn't a principled objection to eating meat per se, but that there was no way when, when, the, when the Jews were expelled out of Rome and they were gone for several years, their enclaves, their ghettos, if you want to call them that, disappeared. Okay, the, those locations where they where they lived and they were kind of identified as Jewish enclaves within those dissipated and disintegrated and went away. So when the Jews returned, they just had to kind of mix in the city wherever they were. So they no longer had marketplaces where they could safely go and buy what we would call kosher food. So there was no way to know when they went to the market to buy meat, whether or not that meat had been prepared under kosher guidelines. Okay. So there was no way to know if this meat was clean. And so the only answer was that to that was, well, we won't eat meat at all because we can't eat meat if we're clean. Probably some of the same reason was motivated behind their uh, 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 reluctance to drink wine in this case. Okay. So it wasn't necessarily a principled objection to eating meat, but it was just, how could you do this? Because you wouldn't ever know if it was clean. Okay, so so these are uh, so so our our weak people here are people who have not come to understand the gospel, the application of the gospel. In the sense of the tremendous liberty that it gives us and the freedom from the old ceremonial law that is implied in the gospel. Okay, they don't understand that. And because they don't understand that, Paul refers to them as weak in faith. Because they haven't come to an understanding of the gospel that helps them see that they are free from these old customs and these old practices. Okay. And, and so Paul says, there is one who feels free to eat whatever. Okay, And, and he's not constrained by that. And so this person is the one who is strong in faith. He understands that Christ has liberated us from some of these things. Okay. But the weak doesn't understand that. And so the weak are very scrupulous about some of these things that we would consider to be non-essentials. Now, if I was thinking about the weak and and I can really identify with the weak because I've been weak in this sense. OK, maybe you have too. maybe you never have. And God bless you if you haven't. But in my life, I spent a good part of my life being weak in this sense. OK, and so I can kind of identify with these people. I hope I've grown. I hope I'm a little stronger now than I was. So I tend to kind of identify myself among the strong now. I hope that's not a mistaken identification. But I know for sure that I have been weak. And I know a little bit about how weak people think. These kind of weak people, not people who are morally weak or 
you know, or weak in character. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about weak in faith in the sense that Paul's using it. And there are a couple things about the weak that I think we could say are probably generally true. And one is the weak don't think of themselves as weak. Right? They don't think of themselves as weak. If they read this passage, they go, well, that's not me. (laughs) I'm not weak. And in reality, in many ways, they aren't weak. Some ways they may be stronger than some of the strong. They've obviously got some degree of self-control, right? Because they are resisting the temptation to partake in certain things or do certain things that other Christians feel the freedom to do. And they're saying, no, I can't. So they're obviously strong in that regard. And it doesn't dawn on them that they are weak. The second thing about the weak that struck me as I thought about it is we've been talking about essentials and non-essentials, right? But on those issues that the weak hold very strong opinions on, they don't think they're non-essentials. Right? They think this is an essential. This is an essential. And they've always got Bible verses to back it up. I know, I've been there, okay? I'm telling you, I'm speaking from experience. We never think we're weak, and we always think that these that our particular drums we beat are essentials. So what do you do? Well, we'll have to wrestle with that as we go on. Okay. But just keep in mind. That the weak never think of themselves, usually, typically don't think of themselves as weak. And typically, they think that the issues that are important to them are, these, are essential issues. They are, they are deal breakers. They are, they are conditions of fellowship. Okay. I think it's interesting that he calls them weak in faith. It's not that they're weak in thinking or yes. weak in education. Yes. They're weak in faith. Yeah. Because they haven't figured out that if they had faith in the change that Christ made, they would realize that whether or not you eat meat is not essential. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now, let me stress. Think about the strong for a minute. Now, Paul is not suggesting that the strong don't have opinions and that the strong don't think it's important for they themselves to live by those standards that they hold to. But what the strong don't do is the strong don't assume that that has some merit or standing before God. The the strong understand that their preferences are not preferences they can impose on others. And so if I am strong, then it's it's my responsibility as one who is strong to reach out and accept and include the one who is weak and not to be intimidated or threatened by what he thinks is essential. But I just reach out and I get him and I put my arms around him and I hug him and I pull him in. Because I want to fellowship with them in Christ. 
Okay? So, so he says in, in, uh, in verse uh, 3, he says, The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. Now, if I am among the strong, my tendency is when I see somebody who just hasn't gotten a clue yet on this issue about eating meat, that it's okay, you don't have to worry about it anymore. Okay? When I, when I see someone like that, what's the tendency of someone who doesn't believe who has come to the conclusion that's no longer an issue because of what Christ did on the cross and because of the freedom we have on Christ in Christ. What is my tendency if I encounter someone who doesn't realize that? <laughs> For the sake of convincing them of their opinions. Yeah, right. <laughs> over a, over a, a Big Mac, right? Our tendency is to look down our noses at them. Right? Our tendency is to look down on them. Our tendency is to regard them with contempt or to despise them. But what does Paul say? Paul says in verse 3, he says, The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. I have no business looking down my nose, considering inferior my brother or sister who is weak. I just receive them as a brother or sister in Christ. I recognize that they're not as mature as I hope someday they will be in their understanding of the gospel and the implications of the gospel. But I just love them because they're my brother or sister in Christ. And I don't look down my nose at them. And Paul is going to deal primarily from the standpoint of the strong and how the strong ought to deal with the weak. But he's got some very strong words, if I can use that term. Uh, he's got some very strong words here for the weak. When he says, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats. For God has accepted him. Who are you who judges the servant of another? For to his own master he stands or fall, and stand he will, for the Lord is able to make him stand. And so, he's, so now he addresses the weak. And of course, I don't think I'm weak. And I think that the things that are, that are important to me are essentials. But Paul is telling me, you do not judge the brother who eats. In these areas of non-essentials, you don't look at your brother who eats and judge them and say that when they stand before God, they are unapproved in their conduct. Because when you do that, you have put yourself in the place of God. You have made you their Lord. And he says, who are you to do that? 
And I dare say, you know, maybe you think of yourself as strong or not. I don't know where you fit, but I'd suggest that probably every one of us is guilty of this. We look at someone who exercises a liberty that we don't have. And we judge them. You notice the difference of terms that he uses when he talks about the attitude of the strong towards the weak and the attitude of the weak towards the strong. The attitude of the strong towards the weak is an attitude of condescension. It's an attitude of, of despising. It's an attitude of contempt. The attitude of the weak to the strong is an attitude of judging. Of saying that person's behavior is not approved by God. Superiority. Yeah. And, and, and Paul says, when you do that, you have placed yourself in the position of that person's Lord and you have no business doing that. Because, he says, that person is going to stand or fall. They're going to be approved or disapproved before their own master, not before you. They don't have to answer to you. They answer to God. And then there's that tremendous closing sentence there. And stand they will. Because God is able to make them stand. So when I look at my brother or sister in Christ who appears to have some liberty that I don't think they have or that I, don't, that I certainly don't feel I have and I don't think they should have and I look at that and my, my attitude towards them should be they will stand before God not because they keep or don't keep my, my standard of behavior or code of ethics or even because they keep their own standard of code of ethics. They're going to stand before God because God is able to make them stand. And he just reverts back to grace, doesn't he? He just comes right back to grace. When you stand or fall before your master, it's not going to be because you kept your code of ethics, whether you're a strong person or a weak person, in his, by his definition here. It's not going to be how well you kept your code. It'll be because God made you stand. It'll be by the grace of God I stand. And if we could just view one another from that perspective, that our brother or sister in Christ stands before Christ approved, not because of what they do, whether it conforms or doesn't conform to what I think it ought to conform to, but they will stand or fall before their master and stand they will because the grace of God is sufficiently powerful to make them stand. There's a lot of stuff we have to talk about in this subject and we'll go on in the next verses. I just want to know where dessert fits in. Where dessert fits in? That's next week. 